Morning. I got all sorts of stuff here. I gotta. So, Barbara Comiskey was ill. As a teenager, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, MS. And while some people who have MS have milder symptoms, Barbara did not. Hers advanced rather rapidly. From the time she was 15 until she was 31, she spent one quarter of her time in her home being cared by people and be cared for by people, and three quarters of her time in hospitals, from age 15 to 31. Three quarters of her life in hospitals. Dr. Harold Adolph, a surgeon, describes her condition by the time she was about age 31. He says this, quote, Barbara was one of the most hopelessly ill patients I ever saw. She was diagnosed at the Mayo Clinic as having multiple sclerosis. She had been admitted to the local hospital seven times in the year that I was first asked to see her. Each time she was expected to die. One diaphragm was completely paralyzed so that the lung was non-functional. The other worked less than 50%. She had a tracheotomy tube in her neck for breathing, always required extra oxygen, and could speak only in short sentences because she easily became breathless. Her abdomen was swollen grotesquely because the muscles of her intestine did not work, nor would her bladder function. She had not been able to walk for seven years. Her hand and arm movements were poorly coordinated, and she was blind except for two small areas in each eye. End of quote. On June 7th, 1981, Barbara was lying in bed, her body curled up and distorted. She was in palliative care under the supervision of Dr. Thomas Marshall. It was assumed at the time that she was in her last weeks of life. On that day, two friends from her Wesleyan church came to visit her, and they brought with them 450 cards and letters. Someone in the, in the area had called the Moody radio station and asked for prayer for Barbara. And people began sending in letters and cards to the radio station, and these women took them over to read them to Barbara that afternoon. As they read these letters to her, Barbara heard a loud, booming voice that no one else in the room heard. My child, get up and walk. Now, Barbara could only speak if someone put their finger over the hole in her neck where the tracheotomy was. Seeing that Barbara was so agitated after she heard this voice, no one else heard, her friends quickly did so. God just told me to get up and walk, she said. Catching her breath, go get my family. Her friends ran to get her family. But Barbara was too excited. She pulled the tube out of her neck and she jumped out of bed in the direction that she had heard the voice and she landed both feet flat on the floor, an experience she hadn't had in years because her feet were curled. Her arms were now hanging, not curled up, hanging at her side like ours do. Her hands were open, and she was no longer blind. She, her friends, and her parents were overjoyed and amazed, of course. The next three and a half hours, she saw several doctors. Dr. Marshall reported that none of them had ever seen anything like this before. After examining her, he stated, I'll be the first to tell you, you're completely healed. I can also tell you that this is medically impossible. There's a link in your Bible app live event to a video interview that she did with Lee Strobel a few years ago. If you don't have the Bible app, that's what it looks like. Go wherever you get your apps on your phone and download it. And once it's up and running and the, on the homepage there, look for the little lines that say more. Click on that. Click on events. And if you have your 
location services turned on, you should see ECC right there. I have several links in there, questions and that sort of thing. There is more to Barbara's story, but that is enough to, for today, except to say that she lived for another 40 years after that healing. She was married, she had three children, and 11 grandchildren. She only died a few months ago at the age of 71 after a short illness. Thanks be to God. So I discovered this amazing story a few weeks ago. I was listening to a podcast, and the guest on the podcast that day was a scholar that I, who I'm familiar with, Craig S. Keener. In 2011, Craig wrote a book on modern-day miracles, telling stories of God's miraculous word in the, work in the world and validating all of it with footnotes. The book, in two volumes, was 1,250 pages long. I think 150 pages of it were footnotes. Modern-day miracles. More recently, however, he wrote another book on miracles entitled Miracles Today, The Supernatural Work of God in the Modern World. This second book is one quarter the length of the first one. And it is intended to be more accessible than his earlier scholarly work. In the time in between the books, when he wrote this second book, he thought he would just pull some of the stories from the first book and retell them in the second book. But he had enough new stories come in that he just, they pretty much filled up the second book. Matt Tebby, one of the hosts of the podcast, referred to his personal relationship with miracles as complicated. And that caught me by surprise because I would say that I have, my relationship with miracles is also complicated. I certainly believe in miracles. I believe in the ones we read about in the New Testament. I believe that miracles can and do happen in the world today. But I would say that my, my relationship with miracles is complicated because I have never seen a miracle. And up until the time I pushed play on that podcast, I doubted I ever would. And now, as I'm reading Keener's book, I'm hopeful that my relationship with miracles will be less complicated. Some of you know that a few years ago, I lost my sister to ALS. She prayed, I prayed, Kim prayed, my parents prayed, her kids prayed, lots of people prayed. At least one time, I think my sister took a trip out to a church that had a reputation for healing ministry, and she was not healed. This did not rob me of my faith. It did not rob my sister of her faith. I just came to believe that miracles are incredibly rare. And as Craig Keener says in the New Testament, as in the world today, they tend to take place in those areas that are sort of frontiers of mission and ministry work. And I grew up in the Bible Belt, the buckle of the Bible Belt, which is far from frontier ministry by almost any standard. But I wonder how many of you all have complicated relationships with miracles as well. Maybe we prayed for someone to be healed and they weren't healed. Or maybe we've never really prayed for a miracle because we just don't believe they happen. Or maybe we ourselves are crying out for our needs right now to be met and we don't feel we are being heard by God. Even considering the reality that we are still dealing with a global pandemic now almost two years in, how many of us have prayed that God would end it and yet we're still in the middle of it? I hope it's not the middle middle. But we're still in the thick of it. We're still journeying through it. 
And likewise, there may be some of you, maybe even a few of you here worshiping with us that do have faith. You've seen miracles take place. You have tremendous faith when you pray for something. You believe God's going to answer you. Wherever you are on that spectrum, we have before us this morning actually two stories of miracles performed by Jesus. The one we read earlier and the one immediately following it from John chapter 5 verses 1 and 9. And they go together. So just to put them side by side, I'm just going to read that second one for you and just listen to it. John 5, 1 through 9. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of, dis, uh, number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. There's more to the story than that, but that's the heart of the miracle. And in some ways, these two recipients of the healings of Jesus could not be more different than one another. In fact, I encourage you to spend some time considering the similarities and the differences between these two stories of healing. Ask yourself what the similarities and the differences tell us about who God is and how God works in the world. So now, our passage, John 4, verses 46 and 47. Once more, he visited, Jesus visited Cana in Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Judy Yost, who is a part of her ECC family, contacted me recently about a similar story in Matthew's Gospel, but in Matthew's Gospel, it is a Roman centurion and it is his servant who is sick. However, Judy's question about that man's boldness in coming to Jesus applies here too. She asked if it would have been risky for a man who served the emperor to come to Jesus and to call him Lord, given that that was a title that was actually reserved for Caesar. That is so true, and that had never actually occurred to me before she asked the question. Something similar is happening here. To say that this man was a royal official is to say that he was more literally uh, the king's official. And the king at that time was Herod Antipas, the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. Coming to Jesus was indeed a risky act by this official, and yet he does so. It is quite the display of faith. How is Jesus going to respond? Verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Now, I think most of us, if we're honest, would say, well, that, that seems a little cold, a little indifferent. We might say that. We might say, it appears that Jesus is actually ignoring the man's request. And we would say, well, that's not very Christian at all, Jesus. And sometimes we bring our request to God, and sometimes it can seem to us that God is silent. Maybe we can identify with this man just a little. Maybe this is how he's feeling. But this doesn't seem to faze him at all. Verse 49, the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Now a few things stand out to me. 
First, it seems that the man's response to Jesus was, again, a tremendous act of faith. Jesus has just basically said, I'm not going to give you what you're asking for because you people are so stubborn that you're only going to believe if there's a miracle to go with it. And to be sure, the royal official is very much interested in a miracle, very much interested in a sign. But there's something else, too. After Jesus' initial remark about unbelief, the official says, come down before my son dies. And Jesus surprises us, surprises him, simply by saying, go, your son will live. The royal official believes before the sign. The royal official believes without a sign at all. He takes Jesus at his word and departs, John says. Before there's ever been a sign, this guy believes. It was, in his mind, as good as done. But was it? I mean, sure, he took Jesus at his word, but there's no guarantee that when he gets there, that's going to be the case. He just took him at his word. And he found himself stuck in the middle and on a journey in between the word and the sign, the prayer and the answer, the now and the not yet. And isn't that sort of where all of us are all the time in our walk with Christ? Caught in between the prayer and the answer? On a journey through the middle of what has been promised to us by God in Christ and where we may find ourselves day by day? Verse 53. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Somewhere in the 16 and a half miles between Cana and Capernaum, somewhere in that distance... Servants come from the royal official's house to tell him that his son has been healed. They bring good news. And there we have the second sign in John's gospel. And signs point us to something. The first sign was the changing of the water into wine in chapter 2. This is the second sign. And this sign and the next one in John 5, which is the third sign, point to something. They point into the, in the direction of the remaking, the renewal of all things. They point toward the renewal of all things. The undoing of all that has gone wrong. The undoing of death and disease in the coming of Christ. In Revelation 21, which was also written by John the Apostle, John has a vision. And in this vision, he sees a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation. It echoes, it, it takes and adapts what we learn about creation in Genesis 1, and it rebirths it toward the end. In Genesis 21, verses 3 through 5, John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne, Jesus, said, I am making everything new. What Jesus did in his ministry tips us off to what Jesus will do one day when all things will be made new. 
In the coming of Jesus and the word of God made flesh and bone, the old order of things is already passing away and the new order of things is already reaching back and transforming our present, breaking into our world. And these healings are signs that point to that new reality, the reality that reveals itself here as fixing everything that's gone wrong in the world and undoing death. The kingdom of God was at hand then and the kingdom of God is at hand now. Where might God want to undo death in your world, in your life, in your relationships? Where is God wanting to infuse new creation into your world? Likewise, there is a popular verse that we often invoke when we're talking about what it means to be saved or to come to faith in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Some translations say if anyone is in Christ, they or he, they are or he is a new creation. But the word he is not there. The word there is not there. We're trying to do the best we've got with what we have. It more likely means there is a new creation. Which certainly means that the person who has come to faith in Christ is a new creation. They are made new. They are reborn. But it also means that the new creation that is promised for the future in Revelation 21 is reaching back and transforming things even now. The Common English Bible captures both ideas when it translates this verse as, So then, if anyone is in Christ, that person is part of the new creation. The old things have gone away, and look, new things have arrived. And I think we all know we need new creation. We need to be transformed. We need to have our sin forgiven. We need to allow the Spirit of God to redirect and repurpose our lives. We also know that things like disease and death need transformation too. They need to be reversed. One of the many fascinating things about Barbara Comiskey's healing from MS is not only was she healed for M- from MS, but her atrophied muscles were healed too, instantly. The process that had taken away the use of her muscles was reversed. And in most accounts of the miraculous healing, that's not the case. People will still often have to go and enter rehab, do exercise and therapy in order to get stronger and re- restore the muscle tone. But not for Barbara. Her healing was complete, and it all points to the remaking of all things, the renewal of all things. These healings in Jesus' ministry are powerful signs that God is at work in the world and renewing the world in and through Christ and in and through those of us who follow Christ. They point not only to the undoing of death, but to the rebirth of a spiritual wholeness. They point to all of creation being restored. They point to the healing of relationships and marriages. They point to the healing of damaged emotions. They point to recovery from trauma and bad decisions and destructive life patterns. And they point to the forgiveness of sins and the promise of redemption. Even as we journey through the middle of it all, the kingdom of God is at hand. So as we move toward closing here, I want to do two things. First, I I want to acknowledge that healing does not always happen and we do not always know why. Craig Keener, author of the book on miracles I mentioned, says that while healing is always a possibility, the truth is eventually we will still die. There will come a time when our life ends. 
Even Lazarus, who was raised from the dead a little later in John's gospel, eventually had to die again. Why? Because for the time being, that's what life on planet Earth looks like. We live and we die. So often, even when we pray for healing and we might have tremendous faith, people will still be ill. People will still eventually die. And that can be disheartening, to say the least. Keener put it this way, right toward the end of the podcast, as he reminds us of those times in which God seems to be silent, he says this, quote, There is something that the Gospels give us that is deeper than miracles. Miracles show us God's power and God's compassion. But in the cross, we see that even when it looks like God is silent, God is still at work to bring about his purposes. In the cross, we see that even when it looks like God is silent, God is still at work to bring about his purposes. Even when our prayers are not answered the way we'd hoped, we can have faith that God is still at work in all things, even pain and suffering, and will one day renew it all. The second thing I want to do this morning is to pray for you. After communion this morning, Pastor Kurt and I will go to different corners here and be available for anyone who'd like to pray during our closing song. You can pray for healing, if that's what you want. You can pray for anything else you'd like to pray for, because I said these healings, in addition to being healings, are signs that point toward the reality that God longs to bring new creation in, into, into being in every area of our lives, even now. If you're worshiping with us online and you would like prayer, simply send an email to prayer at ecclife.net, prayer at ecclife.net. That will go to the pastors, and we will pray for you this week. If you would like one of us to call you, to pray with you over the phone, or even to come and visit you, you can let us know that in the email, and we will reach out to you. Sisters and brothers, if we are living in the here and now, and we all are, if we are living in the here and now, we are all on a journey through the middle. We travel in that space between word and sign, between prayer and answer, between the now and the not yet, between, hope, between angst and hope. This can be in terms of our need for healing. It can be in terms of our need for provision, for restoration of a relationship, for forgiveness of sin, and a whole lot of other things. We are all on a journey. And this morning, God invites us to take Jesus at his word. To trust that God is at work. And even if we don't always see it, or feel it, or sense it, or, or get the answer we're hoping to get. God has not, God will not ever leave us or forsake us. For now, let's just take a moment of silence, and then I'll close us in prayer and we'll prepare our hearts for communion. Would you join with me? God, I ask that you would increase our faith this day. You know the hearts and the lives 
the trauma, the difficulty, the pain, the sickness, the sadness, the sorrow. You know all of it that is going on in each of our hearts and minds and lives right now, better than we do. You know the cry of our heart. You know what we long for and desire. So I ask God right now that you would increase our faith. Increase my faith. That those who need prayer will ask for it. And God, that you will hear our prayers and answer them. Help us to, help us to expect that and to want it and to look toward you. And Lord, even if your plan for us involves not exactly what we ask for, help us to know in the, to the depths of our being that you love us. That you are there and involved and active. And that you will not leave us. Pray this in Jesus' name.